Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week, brought to you by Gestalt IT. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino, and joining me to my left is my co-host, the networking nerd himself, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the program. Hello, Rich. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a super sparkly day, and we are going to get going uh, through the news of the week. Really interesting interview, uh, or I'm sorry, survey coming out of FactSet, uh, showing some R&D figures for some of the major companies. For the second year in a row, Amazon led all R&D spending amongst all companies with $22.6 billion. Now, you may say, okay, it's not too surprising. Amazon's you know, a giant public cloud provider. They're a big uh, uh, e-commerce company. They're, they have uh, fingers in so many delicious pies. Not that surprising. Well, that's a 40% increase from 2016 when they only spent about $16 billion uh, on the year. Uh, the rest of the lineup shakes up pretty much very similar to the last couple of years. Alphabet, Intel, Microsoft, and Apple rounding out the other top spots, each with over $10 billion in R&D funding themselves. Uh, although none of them came quite as close to Amazon. They were pretty much, they weren't flat, but maybe, you know, 5%, 10% increases in R&D spending. So Amazon clearly uh, taking the lead in the pack there as well. Uh, rounding out the top 16, uh, lower on the list, we had Oracle, Cisco, Qualcomm, and IBM, each putting about 5 to $6 billion in R&D in 2017, at least according to public filings. Um, if you look at that, though, compared to Amazon's bags and bags of cash, uh, I believe it was, if you take um, the bottom four and add them together, it's like only, it's $23 billion. So Amazon literally spends as much in R&D as the bottom, or the, the you know, the 14th, 15th, and 16th companies all combined. It's pretty crazy. Um, so, but Tom, the one interesting takeaway from here for me is we see companies on here, not just like, you know, who we consider the new and exciting companies, uh, you know, like, like an Amazon, like a Google, uh, that kind of stuff or Alphabet as it were, but you also see companies that we consider to be more, uh, I don't wanna say moribund, but more, uh, less inspired. We have Intel with $12 billion in funding. We have Cisco, um, you know, not exactly a company that a lot of people, when they think of, think, oh, wow, all this R&D innovation. Uh, any surprise to see those as high on the list as they were? No, not really, because they're still trying to to push a hardware model. I mean, uh, Intel, the chips are life. And if they can't get chips out the door with good R&D, you know, what are they going to do? And the, the problem is, is that, you know, we're, how many times have we heard in the last three years that we're at the end of Moore's Law? <laughs> that we literally can't increase performance like we used to, but yet Intel's doing their damnedest to make sure that that happens. Um, Cisco is still trying to turn that really large oil tanker of hardware, and unfortunately, it's going to be a little bit before it goes. Um, I would be interested to see how the breakdown of how Cisco's R&D went into software for things like ACI more than uh, than platforms. And and you know now that they're starting to look at the possibility of adding commodity hardware on top that runs underneath their software layers. I think you know you might see some interesting uh, some interesting things here. Um, the other thing that really surprised me because uh, you talked about a little bit about Amazon. Uh, I wonder is this not a situation that we're starting to run into where if you are paying for the cloud on a monthly or yearly basis, if you don't get new features frequently, are you willing more willing to dump it or to move to a different solution that does give you features more frequently? Um, is this one of those things where Amazon has to keep freshening things up in order to keep people happy with AWS? 
Yeah, I wonder if they are constantly kind of chasing that dragon of, well, or or it's the other thing of in order to ensure growth, they have to, they've already appealed to the widest subset of customers, but that leaves out a, a large number of niches that they haven't quite hit yet. And are, are there continuing innovations you know, trying to dominate smaller and smaller niches going forward. I'm not sure. I mean, we, we see figures all the time. I, I, we have a story later in the uh, the rundown uh, talking about um, SaaS adoption and stuff like that. And I think it was a, a survey all respondents said about 25% uh, were already, you know, using SaaS applications, but expected to grow to 40% or 45% within the next 36 months or something like that. So there's still a huge overall opportunity for growth. But yeah, it seems like people that have at least started that cloud transition, um, you know, Amazon is already there, whether they need to court these smaller and smaller features, be very aggressive with their R&D. I mean, that's classic Amazon, though, is that they always, you know, they, they make no profit, but they dump everything back into the business. The R&D budget would seem to bear that out. Mm -hmm. All right, coming up next, uh, we had an interesting announcement from the uh, W3C and FIDO Alliance. Uh, they announced the WebAuth standard, uh, which would allow for uh, logins using secure tokens and biometrics rather than passwords. Yay! Uh, the standard will uh, set a, a common set of libraries that should make this easier for smaller services to roll out. In terms of browser support, we're seeing uh, uh, Firefox already supporting the standard. Uh, they had kind of a draft standard that they were supporting with Chrome and Edge uh, going to be coming out with support for it in later months. Uh, interestingly, uh, Apple's kind of been silent if Safari is going to adopt this. They've done a ton of work on the WebAuth standard uh, as it is. So I think it's just a matter of time and they'll probably come up with a catchier name for it uh, to make it sound super cool on Macs and stuff like that. Uh, Tom, I don't know about you, but I use a YubiKey for at least one of my Google accounts. So I'm super excited if that can be extended, um, you know, maybe even tied into a password manager of some kind, uh, just putting in another layer of authenticity. But it's time for the password to die, right? It's about time. <laughs> I don't know why it took them this long. I mean, when you look at all the other things that we're doing with biometrics and with even just simple security tokens, we've relied on the password for too long. That's one of the problems that we get. Yeah, you know what? I understand when the Touch ID sensors came out on the iPhones, everyone's like, oh, you can't change your fingerprint. Yeah, you know what? Touch ID made things a whole lot more um, secure. Face ID, oh, you can't change your face. Eh, let's see a whole lot of people breaking into phones now that we have Face ID. So I think we're getting to the point now where people are starting to realize if you build the right framework and you build the security in on the front side, instead of trying to over-engineer the protocol, what you're going to wind up with is a whole lot more security all over the place and a lot less uh, touch points in the middle where things can get attacked. Yeah, it's not, you're not going to get an email that every uh, 90 days you need to change your fingerprint uh, for, uh, for you to still be able to access, um, you know, your, your, uh, your machine at work. So definitely looking forward to that. I am interested to see though, if for whatever reason, people are wary to take this up. It's easy on a phone when it's on a per device level, you know, when, it, when it's just that, that firewall kind of into your personal device, I think it's a little easier sell than, hey, every single password is tied to this one key. Maybe the solution is to have multiple keys. Again, I don't know how willing people would uh, be to have that. Uh, how aggressive certain um, services uh, will be to integrate that down the road. That remains to be seen. It is nice, though, that they're standardizing it, making it easier. So not just, you know, Facebook and Google can afford to roll this out. Exactly. All right. And uh, speaking of that survey, a uh, new survey found that 64% of enterprise respondents thought that SaaS application adoption is growing faster than the organization's security capabilities. 
I mean, not that surprising, but disheartening nonetheless. 61% of respondents said data privacy was their primary concern with growing SaaS adoption. And about a third of respondents said they thought that remote workers got around their SaaS security practices and admitted uh, roughly half of the respondents that they have done so themselves. Uh, the survey saw an average of about 26% of IT budget spent on overall cloud adoption uh, with the expectation of growing to 40% over the next 36 months that I was referring to uh, just a second ago. You know, uh, Tom, I think in uh, some of the more recent uh, Tech Field Day presentations that we've been able to watch, um, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of Forcepoint that the, the biggest security uh, vulnerabilities that we're gonna be seeing going forward aren't necessarily coming from outside actors, malicious actors, that kind of stuff. It's the fact that you don't know who has access up within your organization and the, the difficulty of identifying insider threats. The fact that half the respondents admitted like, hey, it's a pain in the butt for me to do this best practice for my SaaS app when I wanna use it at home. So you know what, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna do what's easiest because I know what I'm doing. And you know, I, I think that's a contagious condition that moves down the chain until at some point, someone's getting access to something that they shouldn't and that's causing problems for the organization. Absolutely. The, the the biggest problem is not my grandmother when she doesn't understand how to do things because grandma will listen and do what you're told. Um, when, when, I, when I worked at Gateway, um, we affectionately called them sheep. They do what they're told. Um, my biggest problems were when the people who know better call in and they would do things like, okay, I'm going to need you to go click on start and control panel and this. Yeah, I got that. No, that's not what I was asking you to do. <laughs> the, the, the people who know how to get around the, pro the problems that they see are the ones that cause the problems. You know, they're the ones that figured out how to stick a screwdriver in the smoking door to uh, to not have it locked back so you didn't have to badge in and out so you could take a little bit of a longer break. And then that's one of the places you can use as a pen test to get in and out of the building um, to, to pro, you know, pilfer stuff. I mean, security is there for a reason. And like you said, when adoption of the software starts skyrocketing like we've seen thanks to Microsoft and Adobe making everything online and, and SaaS now, um, security is going to have a hard time keeping up because you can't deliver security at the speed your users want features. And until you can, you're going to have to accommodate the people that have got you figured out and basically create a software-defined screwdriver to stick in the problem. And uh, Tom, I want to clarify something. Is the proper pronunciation SaaS or SaaS? Because I like SAS way better, but SAS makes way more sense the way it's spelled. I don't know. I'm just making this up <laughs> as I go. Um, I, I've heard both. I've always said SAS because it goes with, with um, PAS and however you pronounce IAAS. There's too many vowels in that. IAS. Yeah. Uh, I love that disaster recovery as a service. DRAS. <laughs> funny to say. Um, yeah. The, I mean, is this just a matter, though, of because SaaS is so new that obviously the adoption rates are going to be huge. Security budgets generally tend to, okay, yeah, they grow annually or something like that, but they're not anticipating these massive platform shifts that we're seeing. Is this just a matter of, okay, over the next five years, yeah, that's horrible that security is going to be worse, but it's eventually going to catch up as these just become mainstream and we just develop better practices for it? Or is this a serious problem that we're constantly going to be chasing? Security is always a catch-up game, no matter what you do. You're always trying to catch up to where people are, just like your YubiKey. Um, keys were developed for a reason, because people didn't like passwords anymore, or they wanted one-time passwords or something like that. So it'll get there eventually. The question is, is can it get there fast enough before everything shifts? And that's going to be a tough question. 
All right, and next up, uh, some, Tom, I don't know if you've heard about these containers, uh, but they're very exciting. Uh, the Open Container Initiative announced the launch of the distribution specification project to standardize the pushing and pulling of container images, uh, basically uh, just uh, container distribution. Uh, this will be based around the current de facto standard of the Docker Registry v2 protocol. Uh, completing the standard would give a full set of uh, uh, container interoperability. Uh, we've already standardized on a runtime and a container image format, at least according to the Open Container Initiative. Uh, representatives from Docker, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, Google, excuse me, all announced support for the project. So you got the major public cloud providers on board. You have Docker on board. Um, I'm assuming, you know, if based off an open standard, wouldn't be a problem uh, with Kubernetes adoption. This seems like a done deal and kind of a big deal to have basically the three pillars of containers now having an agreed upon format. Yeah, it sounds good in theory. Getting the 80% of this figured out is the easy part. These guys are going to go to war over the 20% because they're going to want their piece to be the standard. And, you know, compromise is what you get when no one gets what they want. Well, these people are not used to not getting what they want. Um, I imagine Google's going to lobby really hard for this to end up all looking like Kubernetes under the hood because then they can claim that they have the best adoption of the new open container standard. Uh, I'm sure Docker is going to want to get their two cents in. Um, Microsoft and Amazon just really don't care. Um, in the long run, they're going to run whatever people decide on. Uh, you know, what I want, honestly, I want something that works and that is portable and usable. I don't want another open stack mess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, 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 what was funny is reading kind of the, some of the press releases for this is the, the surfeit of goodwill that everyone seemed to want to make sure like, yeah, we're all on board with this. This is wonderful, yada, yada, yada. At the end of the day, I mean, they're going to try and lock you in, you know, to their cloud platforms, whether it's through container distribution or whether it's through, uh, you know, again, exclusive features, that kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. We may all agree on interoperability, but in the long run, it's in their best interest to differentiate whether it's on, you know, container distribution or another feature, you know, again, it's important to standardize on this. I don't think it's, hey, everybody, let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Pretty much. All right, Tom, when's the last time you thought about mainframes? Don't answer that question because you're about to right now. IBM launched a so-called skinny mainframe that will fit into standard 19-inch racks as opposed to their usual 24-inch ones. The IBM Z14 Model ZR1 and the IBM Linux One Rockhopper 2 are now available in the form factors they know how to name some mainframes. Uh, uh, these are designed to run uh, uh, pretty much in the biggest of the big, uh, we're talking private and public cloud uh, data centers. So probably not something you're going to see on your everyday uh, trip down uh, you know, uh, to your local uh, server farm. The ZR1 is specifically designed to handle encrypted data, able to handle 850 million fully encrypted transactions a day, and with support for up to 330,000 Docker containers simultaneously. Um, anytime I see mainframes, it makes me happy. It makes uh, me think of old school IBM. Uh, is this any concern to anyone outside of, again, just giant uh, private and public cloud providers looking just for some low-end grunt town? Nope. <laughs> They're, this is this is real easy. They are this is the buggy whip people. You know, you could be the best buggy whip manufacturer left in the United States and have seven customers. And if that's your business model, that's great. And I love Big Blue. I love them to death. I was an intern for Big Blue at the plant where they built AS 400s. Remember the big ones, the refrigerator sized mainframes that they sold like hotcakes 15, 20 years ago. They don't make those anymore, or they do, but they don't make them nearly as big as they used to. Why? The world moved on. You know what? This is great. 
I'm happy that they're continuing and they've managed to shrink an AS400 into the size of a standard rack mount server. For the 15 people that still own them and actively use them, this is outstanding. For the rest of us, when's the last time you honestly considered buying an IBM mainframe? Well, be, and be realistic. Odds are good you probably didn't. Well, and the other thing is, I, you know, this has reportedly been uh, delayed for quite some time. And I have to think it, a lot of it came down to accountants going, all right, well, we can only spend this much because we know we're going to sell 30 of these total. And, it, you know, we're going to get X amount of dollars for selling these in the support over so many years. And so we can't spend that much. You know, it, it puts a hard cap on your development timeline uh, uh, for this kind of super specialized stuff. I mean, we talked about this uh, uh, looking you know, it kind of, uh, when we were looking at um, Dell's uh, VMAX, you know, storage rate kind of, again, playing into, you know, more legacy. Again, very important, uh, you know, has very specific uh, performance needs, certainly fills a niche, not something that's going to gain adoption going forward. This is this is preaching to the mainframe choir. Pretty much. All right, Tom, now, I don't know if you've heard about uh, this company, uh, Facebook. Uh, they've been in the news a little bit this week. Um, you know, being facetious, uh, Mark Zuckerberg testifying before the Senate, uh, all sorts of privacy kerfuffles going on on Facebook's for weeks now uh, with the Cambridge Analytica, um, you know, data leak, disclosure, selling, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, Tom, I just wanted to kind of touch base on this. One, you know, both of us kind of uh, use social media as part of our everyday job, right? With Gestalt IT, you know, we're, we're promoting articles, we're posting this on Facebook as we speak right now. It is a, an interesting platform for business. How can, when we feel, you know, we have to have a presence, I know Elon Musk can go and delete the Tesla Facebook page, right? But how are organizations that, you know, in a lot of ways depend on social media, you know, with the demise of more traditional media, um, using this to kind of, uh, as, as a substitute for that, right? How are companies that are concerned, you know, about their privacies or about their users' privacies or, or just about general consumer privacy supposed to react to this? Well, it's funny because Mark Zuckerberg's basically sitting in front of a bunch of people whose idea of technology is IBM PC Jr. and trying to explain exactly what he does when I'm pretty sure Mark Zuckerberg doesn't even know exactly what he's doing because he's at a very high level right now. But when you look at it from a perspective of a user, I mean, or even a business user, for those of you who are out there who are doing this for your business page, think about all the things that you've done. Think about all the things that you've liked. All of those things can request information. We we got a great presentation on this a few years ago at, at one of the wireless field day events where someone showed us the actual checkbox page. When you click a like button, what you can what you, you, you as a person, as a developer, can request from that person's page. It would frighten you if you really thought about what they can get from you. And that's the people who are trying to be cool about it. I mean, one of the things that came out was that Cambridge Analytica very possibly had access to your private messages because of the way that Facebook implemented the APIs and the fact that they don't really delete your private messages. They just mark them as deleted and leave them around forever. Um, I had a class with some Boy Scouts this week, and I basically told them, when you are old enough to open a Facebook account, you better be very careful about what you say, do, and share, because if you don't, you are gonna be letting a lot more information out than you really intended to do. You know what, it's real easy. Go request your archive from Facebook and find out what they know about you. Go through and delete all the things you don't want them to know about you. You don't have to put a hometown in. You don't have to put a phone number in. You don't have to tell them anything more about you than you would tell a random person on the street. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's very interesting because it is such a pervasive service for a number of levels. Like I, I you know, for a half a second, I thought about 
maybe taking my personal Facebook page off, I realized one need for work, two, I don't want to miss out on birthday invites, which is really lame, but it's also like a legitimate use for Facebook um, in a really weird way. Uh, the, when I downloaded my uh, personal information, you know, I was looking through uh, how many advertisers um, had access to my contact information, you know, just kind of just kind of interested in that. 133 different companies, I would say about 80% of which I like they were just like totally anonymous firms. I have no idea what their business model is. You know, some of them I like I remember it's like, oh, I like those shoes. I clicked like on that brand. Okay, like I, I can accept that they have my information because I expressed an interest in that. It's the it's the other 80% of just weird. Uh, I think there was one that was like like uh, like spacecraft health incorporated or something like that. I have I have no idea what their business model is. They sound super cool. I've never been to space, so I'm not sure why they have my information. The the other thing uh, kind of coming out of this is I don't think we've heard about this from anyone. Um, in, in government strictly, but I have seen uh, on social media, on other social media platforms, calls to break up Facebook. One, I, I don't even know under what grounds you would do so, but let's pretend that there is under an antitrust bill or whatever bill you want to say, there is a some sort of legal basis for doing this. The only model I, I am aware of for this kind of procedure is obviously the AT&T breakup started in the mid 70s, actually, you know, uh, performed 82, 83, you know, around there. That was a I like to me, I, I have no idea how you begin to do this. Do you just break off, you know, WhatsApp, Instagram to, to the core of Facebook? Do you break off the ad selling uh, arm of Facebook and make, you know, Facebook content, Facebook ads, you know, totally distinct businesses? Because that when you get to that point, my question is like, they're not the dominant ad seller. Right. Google clearly still has that market kind of dominated. My question is, how do you even begin to talk about that without any kind of historical uh, uh, analog to kind of fall back to? You don't have one. And that's the problem. OK, great. You're going to tell me you're going to break up Facebook. Awesome. Why? What what exactly are you accomplishing when you when you split? This is like remember when they were going to break up Microsoft in the 90s. We're going to have an office division. We're going to have a Windows division. Boy, good thing you didn't do that, huh? <laughs> after we after our our call last week when we we're like guess what there isn't a windows division anymore no this is the problem the problem with facebook has absolutely nothing to do with the apps that you that are component of it it's the data behind the scenes and you know what if you split it up into whatsapp and instagram and facebook and messenger they're going to federate with each other and share their data anyway you can't fix this problem by splitting it apart you know how you can fix this i'm going to go out on a limb here for all of those of you who are watching this who are active in government, yes, all the senators that love this show, hi, we really appreciate you. They watch um, the Blair read, Yeah, exactly. Go read GDPR. That's how you fix this problem. You make it very explicit how data is to be shared, how data is to be stored, and how data is to be destroyed when it's no longer in use. It's funny that they asked Mark Zuckerberg exactly, are you going to extend GDPR protections to people in the U.S.? And this is the response that they got. And then when they nailed his feet to the floor, suddenly he decides he's going to do it. You know why he was hesitant? Because he realized that as soon as he has to implement those protections for other people who are not covered by GDPR, it changes his entire business model. And that scares him. Yeah, it, it you know, the, the other question I had is, okay, yeah, if you break it up, even if, even if you put in some kind of crazy law that can't be enforced, that, you know, if you break up Instagram, WhatsApp, whatever, they can't federate information, they have to operate as, you know, wholly uh, independent companies or whatever, you still have, like, WhatsApp has 1.5 billion users, Instagram has a billion users, Facebook will end up having still 5 billion users, something ridiculous like that. These are still huge companies that can still, like, you're just 
replicating the, the data privacy problem to three giant companies or four giant companies instead of one hum awesome humongous company. And you still have no effective way to gain any kind of visibility or transparency into that. Yeah, like I, 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 at the end, I have to agree with you. I, I, it's, it's interesting, like I said, I think I said this last week that talking to people that have to implement GDPR, you realize how much of a pain in the butt it is for companies to actually do. But all of them, or I shouldn't say all of them, most of them are like, yeah, this is, this is we should have been doing this years ago. I have no idea how I'm gonna do it now. Um, but that problem only gets worse. Like the longer you wait on this, the more entrenched we become with, you know, distributing and sharing data with no transparency and uh, and really no recourse for people that want to get it off there. So uh, I'm generally not a hey, let's uh, uh, let's have the uh, the regulation step in, especially with some of the comments uh, from senators who clearly never had been on Facebook or know how it works. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I, I have to think. That is the, that, that's how you stop this particular problem. Whether that's the only problem Facebook serves, that's another question. All right, I think that just about does it for the Gestalt IT Rundown. Remember, we are here every Wednesday. We usually broadcast at 12.30 p.m. Eastern time. We're a little later today. Uh, sorry about that. We we're testing out a new setup. Uh, I'm standing up now, and it's very exciting. If you want to see more of our stuff, check it out at gestaltit.com. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology, MR Anthropology, for all sorts of vaguely useful tweets. You can also find Tom at Networking Nerd, uh, no special spelling, camel case, if you're fancy. Tom, anything else people should check out? Um, be sure to pay attention. I'm going to be at RSA next week, so I'm going to come back with a whole bunch of crazy security ideas in my head. Hopefully, we'll have some good news around security being released. I'm already looking forward to a couple of reports that are going to be uh, released. I may have a sneak preview of one of those on gestaltit.com this week. Sounds very fancy. We're looking forward to that. Uh, RSA, not as terrifying as uh, something like Black Hat to attend, uh, because <laughs> Spot the Fed is everyone there. Pretty much. <laughs> All right, Tom, thank you so much for this. Like I said, we'll be back next week, Wednesday. Uh, like us on uh, Facebook, uh, share us with all your private information, and <laughs> and you'll we get We promise we won't steal any of it. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll borrow it, but we're very good stewards. Also, we have no transparency. No, just kidding. Uh, like the page, you'll get notification when we go live, or follow us and like us, subscribe on YouTube. Just search for Gestalt IT on YouTube. We have unboxing videos, all sorts of cool stuff. Social, 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 do that thing. Uh, thank you so much for watching, and until next time we meet, remember, have a super sparkly day.